2: If you're loving this podcast, we invite you to go deeper and partner with us in our work by joining the Gravity Commons, our online community of practice for connecting and learning together.
4: As a member of the Gravity Commons, you get access to live podcast recordings with upcoming guests, as well as other opportunities to connect and learn together with us in real
3: time, including learning labs, member meetups, discussion boards, online courses, and our practitioner podcast. Go to gravityleadership.com slash commons to find out more. See you in the commons.
2: Well hey everybody. Well hey. hey. Well hey. Well hey, hey welcome. <laughs> Sorry, your your podcast is not skipping. Uh, Matt and I just decided to both spontaneously be the per- first person to talk on the podcast. I guess about <laughs> half the time we decide who's gonna be the first person to talk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in those uh, like last we, two I, seconds. I, we yeah, point. we just hit record. Yep. Yeah. And when we don't so, decide,
4: things go great. It goes things yeah, flawlessly. This
2: is going amazingly so far. Um, if <laughs> you're welcome, listening welcome to this podcast,
4: to you are making podcast. good life decisions. So well done, yeah, you are. Yeah, well
2: yeah,
1: done,
4: listener.
2: I'm so excited to spend the next uh, little few minutes with you, mm-hmm. listener. Um, we're, we're gonna we're gonna get to our interview today, which is with uh, a friend and uh, an author and a really really keen thinker. Named Brandon O'Brien. Mm. Uh, but first we, we have to we have to just get uh, reacquainted with ourselves. It's the first time. I know. Uh, we since haven't been together. Back. I know. But Matt, you've been on vacation. Um, Hello, I'm Matt, I'm forty six. I'm a Gemini. Yeah. And <laughs> and you've been on vacation. Oh yes, I've been on is vacation. Is that what you learned on your vacation?
4: Uh I did turn forty six on my vacation. That's right. That's right. But I, I, I knew I was going to turn forty six before I went. So, Uh, yeah. The and you came to the
3: best place Uh, in the whole world,
4: Las Vegas.
3: (laughs) Oh,
2: he did go to Las Vegas, though. That's true. You did, but the best
3: place in the whole world is Colorado. That's right.
2: Come on. That's right. (laughs) Colorado. Yeah. So we we
4: had uh, we we went to uh, stayed at a hotel in Las Vegas. I know people people um, sort of uh, cover their their mouths with their hand when I say that, but we... I raised hung- my eyebrow slightly. I know, I saw that. I mm, saw that. Um, Vegas. Mm. I know. Um, listener, it's okay if you're thinking judgy thoughts. It's okay. Uh, we went to Las Vegas, stayed at the MGM, which has uh, got a lazy river, and we basically hung out oh. in by the pool for like three days straight
2: while... Um, 36 hours, th- well, three days. That's 72 hours in the lazy river. New record. <laughs> we were there. We were there a lot. Slept. I don't know how
4: many laps my son did, but it was over fifty. It was great; Great. had a great time. saw saw the Matt King show. He's a comedian, magician. Um, I'm sorry, illusionist. Illusionist Michael. He he, uh, was great family friendly entertainment, and I think I gained about seven pounds in Las Vegas.
3: But then you lost (laughs) it in Colorado because we hiked it all around, and then we came to
4: Colorado Springs altitude. And stayed with Christy and Paul. Uh, that's fun. Yeah.
2: And we did hike it's all like around. A, like a gravity leadership. Uh, I, I feel excluded a little bit. I, I mean, I felt, I felt like I know you guys were having a great time and mm-hmm. hanging out. Um, but but uh, I, my only consolation was that I got to go to New York City with my oh. high school graduate daughter. Yeah, you um, did. For, for a couple days. And so um, I didn't feel jealous at all, actually, because I uh, got to see some of the best views in the city because we got friends uh, in New York mm. who know what's up. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was fantastic. I had a great so time. So
3: fun. Yeah. 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 All right. And
2: Chris, Christy, heads up. I, I was just talking with, um, so my college graduate daughter, we never took one of these trips. And so we're trying to plan one. And yeah. One of the ideas is that there are fairly cheap flights to Denver.
3: Come on. Right now.
2: And we were thinking like if we're going to spend money on flights somewhere, maybe we could find somewhere to stay.
3: Yeah. For free. You totally can stay in my basement for free. All right. Well, yes, the Tebby family up, just did that coming. this past week. Yeah, do yes. it. they
2: be coming. Even yet this summer, we'll see.
3: It's good also, to be together.
2: Yeah, it is good to be together. Um, also, speaking of, I wanted to mention this to to, to you guys. Speaking of um, daughters, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the other daughter who's not Deb a pregnant? college graduate. Do <laughs> you have another kid? <laughs> Announcement. Finally, finally. Drum roll. <laughs> After 17
4: <laughs> years. We have, Here we come.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow. That got, that got overwhelming fairly fast. Oh, so.
4: this is great. That would be such an amazing story. <laughs> <sighs>
2: Yes, an amazing asterisk. Anyway, um, my my other daughter, uh, who is not a college graduate or a high school graduate, um, just procured tickets to go see a K-pop band in mm. Louisville this summer named Luna. That's the K-pop band. So she's been into K-pop for a little mm. while. Do you guys know what K-pop is? You heard? Yes. Of yep. yep. It yeah. stands
4: Dancing. for it, Well, it stands for kangaroo
2: pop. No. Nope, Matt clearly doesn't know what's going on. Once again, look, I'm a white (laughs) man. I spoke with confidence. You're supposed to believe me, (laughs) right? I don't know what K stands for. What does what does K stand for? The K stands for uh, Korean. So it's just like Korean pop groups. Yeah. So they're like they're they're yeah. There's these basically Korean pop groups. It's groups of uh, singers and dancers. Um, uh, Yeah. It's like a thing, and they kind of their lyrics are like kind of half English, mostly Korean. and uh, there's a whole, but they're
3: fun to watch. Yeah, the the they're dances are cool. Fun. My mm-hmm. daughter
2: learns all the dances and stuff, and she's really excited to go. Yeah, to go see to go see this band. So,
1: so
3: anyway, is that a family uh, that thing? Planned. Are you going with her?
2: Um, I, she got two tickets, and I'm probably gonna be the one to go with her. Um, okay, when, uh, her mother or I will go. Deborah, okay. or I will go. So that's so fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's gonna be fun. I have a good time.
4: So. Christy, uh, this is a quick question before we get to this interview. What's the last concert you went to?
3: Mm. <laughs> uh, probably Judah and the Lion. Do you know that Judah band? Judah and the Lion. No. No. Judah and the Lion. No. Um, so uh, a guy in the band, his name's Nate. Nate, if you're listening, I love you. Um, grew up in the youth group that I like oversaw oh, uh, like fun. 10 years ago. And so whenever they come into town, we try to we try to see them. Yeah. They're That's really good You should fun. check them out
2: Yep Judah and the lion Yep Matt what was the last concert You went to I like this question
4: uh, Rebecca St. James 1993 Still have my purity ring Thank you <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: Um, Wait Nope I just remembered There's been and one there's, since, there's then. Been since then There's been something Since then The last concert I went to Ben I think was Gosh Was it with you Did we go see Watch House last summer uh, Was that my last did. concert I mean we
2: did We did do that that might be your last concert. I, I keep think. inviting you to all these shows. I'm going to, um, right? But uh, but you don't want to come. I don't know. That's don't not know true, Ben. Okay.
4: Um, right.
3: Shows are fun. I like um, shows. Are they're really fun to me? Just my yeah. favorite.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Ben, That's you really you, you went you go to a concert. You go to a concert a month. At this two concerts I, a month. Once once they started touring again, I was like, I'm going. I'm going. I did have to hold off, though, guys. I have a little bit of a dilemma on my hands. Can I share my dilemma about concerts, real quick? Please. Here we go. Okay. Yeah. So um, I, the, the last show I went to, I went to see uh, Beach Bunny in May and then I went mm-hmm. to see Built to Spill in May and both were mm-hmm. great uh, in their own ways. Um, and then um, one of, so in August, there is a week that there are three different shows in the week that I want to go see. Oh, but geez. I feel like three in a week is too much. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true. Listener, uh, you can maybe uh, give me some coaching here. Um, because I'm not sure if that's true, but Wilco is going to be in town August 14th. I don't have tickets to that. Jack White is going to be in town August Ooh. 17th, Wednesday night, oh and then gosh. the Beths, which is like a New Zealand little pop punk band that I love, that I love, they're going to be in town August 19th. It's like three different shows in the same week. Okay, I feel but like I, can this I go what you all need three? to
3: do. Yeah, you can. Mm-hmm. You totally can. You just okay. need to invite different people. So like one oh. of them can be like date night.
1: Oh, you okay. know, okay. you like,
3: I don't know. And then Little one of them experience. could be like, take take one of your kids and mm. have like father time. And then Other one time. of them, you invite a friend. Okay. Like a Gravity uh, Leadership podcast friend.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Fly <laughs> one out from Colorado. <laughs> I like how Chris, or Matt, I
3: suppose. I like how <laughs> Christy is myself. trying to
4: set up a, a friend date between Ben and I.
3: Mm-hmm. I know, I am. Look yeah, at that. You or somebody else. Or or a different
2: uh, or a different friend. <laughs> who hosts the Gravity Leadership Podcast. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, there's one that lives in town. What's his name again? What was his name? <laughs> yeah. He's been anyway, on vacation. I think you
3: should go. All three, just pick different people. It's like...
2: All right. Um, I Christy, uh, I can always count on you to advise me to go for it and have fun. Yeah, for real. This is great. Yep. I love this. Okay, I'm going to buy tickets to all three. Going for it. Matt, Well, which one do you want to come with? <laughs> Uh, w- uh, Maybe you
3: ask your wife first. I'm sorry, okay. Matt doesn't uh, well, get first pick.
2: <laughs> I think okay. there was a
4: band in there <laughs> sure. called Beach Kitty. Is that right? Nope. I'll go to Beach uh, Kitty. Almost,
2: yeah. The Beths. The Beths. Beths. Beach Bunny was. That's she's. They've already been.
4: They've already been here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I. I um, great, by the way,
2: Jack White is interesting. But
4: you know, we should probably get into Brandon. We do need to get O'Brien, into this because Friends. uh Friends. was a love. It was a. He's a charming chap. Oh, Brandon O'Brien. And this was a a great conversation about a book that... um, I was talking to Christy's husband when we were at her house. Eventually, I had to talk to him. And we were... uh,
2: Couldn't avoid him forever.
4: It, it was weird. Three, oh, it you guys. Three, three days in.
2: Um, yeah. No, we were chatting about Paul, how... Paul kept asking Christy. He's like, hey, are the Tebbies here? Because I keep hearing noises in the basement. No,
3: that's not even true. It was like no. late nights, <clears throat> intense conversations.
2: True. All yeah. right.
4: All right. Uh, it's true. Yeah. But anyway, intense. I was talking to Paul I mean, about this book and how uh, important it's been in my life. Yeah. And he was yeah. conferring as well. So... We talked with Brandon about a book that's ten years old now, misreading scripture yeah. with Western eyes, and um, got into some great, um, like, peripheral discussions that surround the the topics of the book, but he doesn't mm-hmm. actually delve into them. And then he shares uh, on this podcast that he's they're going to do an updated and revised version, yeah, which I can't wait I have to yeah. read it again.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was really it was really good. I loved. Um, Yeah. I love Brandon's, uh, uh, he's got a good thinker. Like he thinks Mm -hmm. sort of, um, he's one of these guys that, that like thinks, uh, very original thoughts. I'm always, Mm -hmm. I'm always surprised by like what he's thinking about. Mm -hmm. Um, I follow him on Twitter. Um, and he, he's great there as well. But in this conversation too, he was just really, um, exploring, uh, new thoughts that he wasn't quite sure about kind of live with us, which is, that's, that's our kind of our favorite thing, isn't it? Um, on this podcast. So, so yeah. it was it was great. This is a good conversation with Brandon that I hope you all enjoy. Not as then much it, as I hope. I hope well, more. Mm. I hope <laughs> m- I hope you can more. You came back from vacation sassy. I, young man. I
4: Yeah, it's been a while since I've I listened to you guys do the intro for uh was it Jay Augustine? Yeah, um, the last one, yeah. Yeah, and I was I felt I felt a little left out. Yeah, oh, I, well, that's what happened. We're glad you're going, back. I just I though. crept upstairs at the Penley's house, grabbed a box of cookies, and uh, ate my feelings until I felt better. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: that's that's my strategy. All, All right. right, well let's get let's get into let's it.
1: Dive
3: here's,
2: in. Here's Brandon.
4: Brandon O'Brien joins us on the Gravity Leadership podcast today. He's the Senior Director for Content Development and Distribution at Redeemer City to City and author of several books including Not From Around Here, What Unites Us, What Divides Us, and How We Can Move Forward and the book we're chatting about today, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes: Removing Cultural Blinders to Better Understand the Bible. Brandon, welcome back to the Gravity Leadership Podcast.
5: Thank you. I'm really honored to be back. It's good to see you guys.
4: It's good to see you too. And Christy's here and Ben's here, and this is a mm-hmm. Gravity Live podcast. Hey, hey. Yeah. Um, Brandon, I think I mentioned this last time you were on, but I think it was three years ago. So I'll say it again because people, yeah. most people have listened to another podcast since then. <laughs> Uh, I, I think I, I think I should get a cut for your book sales, man. I am pitching this book every time I see it on a table at a conference, I like pick it up and I tell them like, don't leave without buying this book. I think i sold at least five.
5: Um, That's awesome. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. I have a, I have at least one uh, colleague who requires the book in a, in a, the college courses he teaches okay. and we have, I, I owe him a drink whenever we're in person as a, yeah. as a cut of royalty. Yep. So maybe we should institute that policy moving right, forward good. for you guys.
2: Good. <laughs> well,
4: I'll thanks. talk to the people at IVP. We'll see you, <laughs> um, I, you know, it's uh, interesting. We've been doing this podcast now for several years, and this is one of the most foundational and formational books for me in the last 10 years. And I was um, looking at it just this week to prepare for this interview. Can you believe this book is 10 years old? It's 10 years old.
5: 10 years. I know it's wild.
4: What can you give us some reflections on? um, I mean, I know maybe, maybe we can start with you and Randy and how you guys know each other and how the idea for this book came out. And then what, what the what mark this has left on you, this book in the last ten years?
5: Yeah, so Randy Richards was a professor of mine and undergrad at Washita Baptist University. Um, I was his student, uh, like work study, you know, student assistant or something assigned by random, uh, and just connected immediately at a personal level. We became good friends. He became a mentor. Um, and we, so we knew each other through there and actually the book opens with a scene in, uh, during a study trip, we took to Turkey together. So that now is 20 years ago, that scene, which is even harder to believe than the fact that the book is 10 years old. (laughs) So, um, so we go back a ways. And then at some point I was working on my PhD in historical theology at, uh, Ted's Trinity Divinity School. Um, Randy's a, a New Testament scholar specifically focused on Paul and he was working on a paper um, for uh, SBL or ETS or something on kind of misreading Paul through cultural lenses. And we were just kind of talking about it um, and reflecting on how, yeah, this, this applies to Paul. Also, if you broaden the examples, this applies to a lot of our habits, in reading scripture, et cetera. And so it kind of started out as a conversation, over a cup of coffee about a paper and and grew into, there's a bigger project here. And um, so it's, you know, he he came at it as somebody who has cross-cultural experience as a missionary after his PhD studies. So he studied Paul and then went overseas and realized that all all of his study of Paul had been through a Western, Hmm. you know, kind of academic perspective. And I came at it as a historian or a budding historian and noticing that even in the U.S., over generations, the things that go without being said for different generations of Americans changes over time. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to read, you know, in one generation, somebody's take on uh, Ephesians passages about alcohol. And then, and it's like, and they'll say, obviously, this doesn't mean we shouldn't drink wine. And then two generations later, somebody reads it and they're like, obviously, this means we should never drink wine, (laughs) you know? And it's the obviously that sort of kept striking me is that why is this self-evident, what changes that makes certain interpretations self-evident. So I was already kind of thinking about that from a historical point of view. Randy was thinking about it from this sort of biblical um, hermeneutic point of view. And so it was a lot of fun to put our heads together and do something of a cross-disciplinary take on it. And um, his interest has remained, uh, you know, New Testament backgrounds, history, In the text, my interest has remained kind of, I think of him as like what's behind the text. And I think of mine as what's in front of it, what's between us and the scriptures when we Mm. read. And so we've both kind of gone in those, diverged in the sense that we've gone in those two, deeper in those two directions, but still asking, you know, very similar questions about how that plays out when we read and the, and, and why things are (laughs) self-evident to us and why different things are self-evident to different people. And I think that's, um, and in terms of kind of like, what does it meant to me? I think that 10 years ago I was at the very beginning of that journey. Um, and so it has only, I've only become more convinced of the significance of those cultural, um, cultural givens been more, only more convinced at how deeply they shape us unconsciously. Um, and would probably now just want to go into kind of deeper complexity. Um, it's probably best that the book does not go into that deep complexity. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably what makes it readable and helpful is that it's relatively straightforward. But I think it's it, that was the top of the rabbit hole for me, you know, uh, 10 years ago. And so uh, we just kind of keep going down.
3: Brandon, I'm really glad to be on this interview with you because just a couple weeks ago, I was at a retreat and there was a a man who is a Buddhist and he found out that I was a pastor and he was like, oh my goodness, have you read this book? And it was your book. And he had just (laughs) recently read it and it was making him ask really good questions. And actually he said it was refreshing um, to him based on like all the other stuff that he had read within Christianity Mm -hmm. um, for him, this was like really helpful and really good. But your book really um, is a book on Western culture and how Western culture shapes how we read scripture. Right. And you talk about all sorts of things like ethnicity and language and um, you know, honor and shame and all that kind of stuff. I'm curious to hear from you, you know, 10 years later, which Mm. one of those has had the biggest impact in a way that you read scripture in your Christian life.
5: Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm really encouraged by that story. Thank you for sharing that. And I think um, one of the things that strikes me, we can come back to this another time, but I think one thing I've wrestled with over the last decade is that a lot of a lot of the critiques of Christianity are just as culturally narrow as some of the mm-hmm. the full-throated defenses of western christianity right and so i think that it's helpful to to be able to take a step back whether you are defending american evangelicalism or critiquing it in both cases you're still doing it from a very similar vantage point mm-hmm. and both both are skewed right or they are they aren't taking taking um the text very often and it's in its own kind of cultural givens and so uh it's encouraging to hear that someone maybe received it that way yeah. um i think kind of along those lines maybe the thing maybe the thing that has the deepest well for me ongoing is the sort of individualism i think i've i've zeroed in on individualism in part because a lot of evangelicals have zeroed in on individualism as a particular blight on American Christianity. And I think that I don't necessarily disagree, but I often think the way we talk about individualism is really reductive reductionistic and it focuses on our preference for individual people, but it doesn't recognize that individualism means that people who are individualistic are psychologically different, we're cognitively different, we process data differently. We perceive the world differently. So it's not just a philosophical preference for individuals over groups, which is how it's often talked about, which I would say is probably more like selfishness rather than individuality um, or individualism, but that it's actually like our brains are wired differently, not just we prefer different things. And so I think that's for me become over the, especially the last couple of years, a place where I just kind of keep digging in and saying like, I I don't think 10 years ago I appreciated how profoundly my being part of an individualistic society shapes how I perceive everything. Um, And so in some ways, it's almost like this may be overstating it. If Randy listens to this, he'll text me and he'll tell me that (laughs) that it's overstating, but it's almost like individualism, collectivism, maybe the umbrella. And a lot of these other things that we talk about in the book, like Mm. time and ethnicity and and money and whatever, it kind of nests under those broad differences. And Randy has done more work on this in a really great book that everyone should read, um, Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes. So he unpacks that particular thing. Um, But I think that's where I've, where, where I have what I found most fruitful and that where I'm reading against the grain, the most yeah. is in the assumption uh, in, in the totally unconscious yeah. habits of being a Western individual reader.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Brandon, maybe we can double click on that a little bit because I think sure. um I, I've been uh, guilty of this <laughs> in sermons and uh, you know, hmm. that kind of thing. But um I think, uh, there is often, when we think about, let's think about that, you know, individualist versus collectivist, there's oftentimes a value judgment associated with that, right? Where, yeah, and especially as people are, I think, coming to see the limitations of individualism or the problems with it, we start to think like, <clears throat> I think one of my impulses was like, okay, we need to get back to the culture of the Bible. Mm. So they were more collectivist. And so that's better than what right. we have now which is individualist and so it's better to be a collectivist let's let's get back to the culture of the bible but the, your argument is not quite that simplistic it, it's more nuanced um so i wonder if you could like help us navigate that mm. um you know the differences between modern western culture and yeah. the ancient near east um, yeah. how do we think about these differences in, in terms other than just value judgments which one's better or worse right that's a
5: great question and i think that yeah that's a great Follow up because we do. If we start thinking the problem with America is that we're individualistic, then the solution becomes we should be more collectivistic, maybe, or we yeah. should just be nicer individuals. I'm not sure exactly what. <laughs> right, the, yeah. but I think the challenge is, you know, uh, my 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 granddaddy had uh, was a very organized person. He had this tool shop with a bunch of tools hanging on the wall, and over the years, he had like traced with a sharpie where the tools go. So that, you know, whenever you take one out, you just go back and it's like, oh, this is the, you know, the wrench goes here because there it is on the wall.
2: Yeah, That's a brilliant system. It's a
5: brilliant (laughs) system. And it's great if you're the only one ever messing with your tool shed, you know. Um, But I think sometimes I think what we try to do in the, when we talk about culture is we try to, it's like we take the wrench out of that, tool shed and then we put a hammer in and Mm. we've put something new in the slot, but the slot is still designed for Mm. something else. Right. So we're, we're changing a behavior, but we're really not changing Mm. an underlying assumption or a gut level instinct or intuition or something. And so it's, we're just kind of putting an object in a storage place that it's not meant for. And that you can do that for a little while, but eventually you realize that like the whole system has to kind of reconfigure if we want the outcomes that, that we're aiming for. Does that make sense? So I think, Mm
1: -hmm.
5: so I think I've been trying, I don't know if this is helpful. This may be a rabbit trail because this is not a fully integrated idea, but I think that I'm trying lately to separate the terms culture and society. So we live in an individualistic society, which means all of our institutions, all of our laws, all of our habits and whatever are, are designed around individuals. So I can't go to prison for a crime you commit. I can't, you can't take a test on my behalf. Um, we, you know, the property is not determined strictly, property inheritance is not determined strictly by genealogy. It's what an individual puts in a will to leave to another. Like So everything's designed, the society is designed to prioritize individuals. That makes sense. Cult- culture is the sort of habits and uh, norms and practices and everything that, that makes sense in a society that's arranged that way. Right. It's, and so okay. we can't change, we can't have a collectivist culture really in an individualist society. We just can't do that. And so what, when we try to say, let's live more like the people did in the Bible, then you, you're finding kind of in, you're, you're finding interventions or things that will work in an individualist society, but they'll, they'll never be. Yeah. They'll never work the way they worked in a collectivist society, if that right. makes sense. So really, the only way to do that is to separate. So, right. you know, the, the Amish or somebody who, who you're really not participating in that society, you create a different one, and then you can have a different culture. Yeah. So we just have to figure out how do we... One answer is probably the church has to operate in, to some degree as a, as a different kind of society, right, with, uh, mm-hmm. within itself. Yeah. But I think I've also am really influenced by Andrew Walls, the missiologist who talks about the fact that Christ has to incarnate in every culture and every society. And so we can't become collectivists to follow Jesus, really. We just have to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus as a Western individualist in a way that's still faithful Right. to the way he called people to follow him 2000 years ago and it'll look different, right. but we're going to have to do it within the systems that we have. We just yeah. have to.
4: Yeah.
5: Um, and it doesn't mean we have to accept them all as in in, in their current form. And it doesn't mean we can't change them, etc. but we mm. we just have to recognize that these yeah. things are exerting more influence than, yeah. than sometimes we realize.
2: Yeah. So, so it's, it's a matter of, I mean, just like Jesus was incarnate as a, you know, first century, ancient Near East, you know, itinerant prophet, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of, um, we also have to find that, that doesn't mean that that's the best, you know, vocation for everybody, or, you know, that's how we follow Jesus. (laughs) I mean, these things feel obvious to us, right? Exactly. Um, Yeah. Become, you know, we can't go back in time, you know, first of all, Uh, but I think it just makes it, it, it's just a more difficult task. I think this is why we reach for these things, right? It's easier to just say, hey, we should be more collectivistic, but, you know, really what we mean by that is, you know, I don't know. It's usually something else. Like you're saying like less selfish, you know, let's be less right. selfish. Let's think right. about each other, which, um, but yeah, the, the, the task I think is just, it's more difficult than it is sort of grabbing the the ancient world and saying there, that was a good culture. This one's a bad culture because that's, that's, right. that's not true either. Like that's right. there's all kinds of problems with the way that societies were organized, you know, back in those days. So
5: that's right. And I think it's worth remembering that the, the vision of the kingdom of God from the Old Testament that's made really clear in Acts is that the church was always meant to be a multicultural institution, which means that there's not, I mean, the whole, you know, a big thrust of Acts is that you don't have to adopt Jewish culture in order to follow Jesus. Even for people who are operating in an ancient Near Eastern world, like Greece or, you know, somewhere outside of that, you didn't have to Adopt the customs in order to follow Jesus. That's still true for us. Right. Um, but it is it's really tempting when we're just when many of us feel some sort of antagonism against the broader culture. We want to reject it and have something different and without realizing that. But if you're if you're still speaking the language, like unless I'm somehow a Hebrew first thinker, I'm never gonna process right. the teachings of Jesus the way. Peter right. and John and Andrew did, yeah. because I'm always going to hear them if I, we don't necessarily think of language as a cultural filter, but it is.
1: Yeah, it is.
5: So yeah. unless we're going to all speak Hebrew, then we're not going to ever adopt the culture completely. Right. And so I think just recognizing those, th- those things as a function of culture begin to help. Um, I like to, my college students didn't like this, but when I taught college and they said they wanted to, you know, share all their belongings to be more like Jesus, and I would say, well, Jesus was probably also at least bilingual, if not trilingual. So, what languages are you learning in order to become more like Jesus? And they're like, well, that's not what I meant. And I thought, well, you know, then what do you mean? <laughs> so, being yeah, so a random there,
2: feature from his life,
5: yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there is a highly selective nature to the things uh-huh. that we want to adopt right from uh-huh. the <laughs> from the mm-hmm. life of Jesus. Very often.
4: Uh, well, Brandon, this is actually. Something that uh, you could write a. I, I have a book project for you. I'm going to pitch to you right now <laughs> okay, because that's... there is there is this uh, uh, maybe two ditches we fall into. One is just n- not even being aware of our Western eyes, hmm. and and having just a ad- like co opting and adopting, like basically just raiding the biblical text and pulling it into American culture. And then, you know, we have sort of um, iterations of that today, nationalism or just sort of syncretism, like those kinds of things. Um, But then we have sort of like, well, no, ancient culture is best. So we're going to live according to the Old Testament law or we're Hmm. going to, you know what I'm saying? Or, um, well, because, um, uh, you know, some some arguments for uh, patriarchy go like this, right? So patriarchy... The Bible's written in a patriarchal culture, therefore patriarchy is good. Or the Bible's written mm-hmm. when slaves are around, therefore slavery is good. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, if we're not going to jump in those two ditches, hmm. how do we how do we actually see our Western eyes? Learn how to see the way that biblical people did, to the degree that we can, and then and then improvise or extrapolate faithfulness hmm. today. What, what is that? That's a hermeneutical move that we all do sometimes unreflectively. Yeah. If you were to reflect on it as a, as a, you know, a pitch, you're pitching me a book proposal. Yeah. What's your take on that? So
5: I hope this is an answer to your question, but I've been, I think that the one place that is important for me to start is to recognize diversity as a, feature of creation and the kingdom and not a bug, right? So I think there's a way of talking about difference of opinion among Christians. The reason we don't agree on everything is because of the fall and because, and with the implication that if we were all sinless, we would agree about everything. I'm I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure that Genesis, for example, gives us any indication that Adam and Eve knew everything. In fact, there's a tree of knowledge of good and evil, which implies that they didn't. And so if people just continued to expand and fill the earth and there was never a fall, I think there still would have been different cultures that emphasize different things and and saw things differently, right? Which is to say that I think if culture and difference is a feature and not a bug, then I can see difference of opinion, difference of culture, et cetera, as a gift and not a problem to overcome. And so I think then that begins, it helps me in Acts see things like the church that is both made up of of both jewish background believers and gentile background believers as something that's better uh in some ways than like a homogenous church made up only of jewish believers because they have things to teach each other right like they can show each other depths of the gospel truths about god that they couldn't have arrived at by themselves yeah and so i think if we're if we're there the reason i say all this is that you can reject reject the ancient culture and totally adopt our own or reject the present culture and want to prefer the other. If you have this kind of monolithic view that there's kind of a right, there's a right way to be a person and only one. And if everybody believed the same things, we would all live in that one way. Hmm. I think the fact is if we're all finite and we were from the beginning, that's not a sense. That's not a problem with the fall. That's a feature of creation.
1: Mm
5: And we always have, we've always needed other perspectives to kind of round ours out. And that's not because we're fallen, that's because we're human. And so I think that helps me to kind of get there. I think this is a a circular way to answer your question, but I think it helps me get there to say that like, short of learning about the culture of, the like the cultural backgrounds of the old and new Testament. I find reading with someone in reading a passage of scripture with someone who has different cultural assumptions from me suddenly opens up things that now I can say, you know, is mine closer to the assumptions of the new Testament or are yours closer to the assumptions of kind of the new Testament? And then that gives me now the two of us together probably have a more objective interpretation of what's happening in the passage than either one of us has by ourselves. And so then that sort of multiple, that variety of vision becomes an asset rather than a liability where I'm trying to argue you into my view. Now I can say, thank God you see things differently because yes. you can help me see things that
1: I don't. Yes. And that I
5: think that helps you stay out of the ditches, right? Is that you begin to see that you need a plurality of v- visions to kind yeah. of stay out of the ditches.
1: I think- um, I That's a long-winded actually,
5: response. I don't know if I ever got there. <laughs>
4: two, no, two things that occurred to me, as you say that, Brandon, and I know we're kind of off the map now, but um, I love it. Um, one is um, we we recently had David Ford, who is a, a professor New Testament prof emeritus in England, and he spent 20 years writing a new gospel, a new John's gospel commentary. And uh, part of that was he he would read John's gospel with Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and Jewish people. Oh, wow. And they would just listen and ask questions. Um, he also took, was it two years, Christie, where he, listen, yeah. to this, listen to this. Yeah, he, I'm glad ri- you're talking
3: about this because I was thinking <laughs> the same thing.
4: He, Richard Balcom and Richard Hayes would sit down and read John mm. and just talk about it. Yeah. Mm. And, and he said, basically I wrote this commentary at a 20 years of listening to the gospel of John in community with these
5: mm-hmm. various
4: voices. Um, that's the first thing that occurs to me is and that mm. the, the commentary is beautiful. It's very devotional and it's stirring. Um, mm. the second thing that occurs to me is, I don't know, you probably would know the percentage of this, but it's got to be over half of the new Testament is written because it was a pastoral issue of mm. how to deal with the difference you're talking about. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that the difference generates faithfulness. And I'm saying the difference generated scripture, Mm. like, like, like we, we have the scriptures because people had to learn how to live faithfully in this generative tension. Yeah. And I think, I think the scriptures we have bear witness to what you're saying.
5: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And I've, I've been stuck in the first 15 chapters of acts for like the last two years, just kind of reading and reading and reading and, and wouldn't have phrased it that way. But I think, I'm struck, especially 8 to 15, how the original disciples who receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on them to be Jesus' disciples go out and proclaim the gospel. But it's in the proclaiming of that gospel across ethnic lines. So, it's Philip speaking to a Samaritan sorcerer and then to an Ethiopian eunuch and Peter with the, you know, um, Gentile centurion that they They understand the gospel enough to proclaim it, but they don't understand the depth of it until they proclaim it to people who ask questions that they've never considered. And so it's developing in real time. And the phrase that I probably over-eisegete is the, you know, in Acts 10, when Peter is talking to Cornelius, he says, now I understand that God does not show favoritism. And I think, how is it that he now understands? It's that he's had these years of uncomfortable interactions with people that he thought couldn't teach him anything Mm. about the gospel or even about the law, the scripture. So with Jesus and he gets dragged to the house of Levi and the prostitutes and whatever. And then the spirit keeps sending him in similar kinds of uncomfortable situations. But I think you're exactly right that that so Acts 15 is forged in that conversation how do we talk about Christian fellowship if these folks eat things that are different and they don't have the law and they don't know our traditions, they don't worship in the temple. And the kind of baseline is, well, if God accepts them and we know they did, he did because he gave them the Holy Spirit, then who are we to make it hard for them? And that's kind of, it starts there. And then it, and then the theology of the letters and other things reflect that tension of these two communities trying to sort out, how do I follow Jesus if I don't do it with reference to the law yeah. and the temple? And so that opens the door. That it doesn't just allow the Gentiles, and it reimagines it. Help it helps Jewish background believers reimagine what it means to follow Jesus too. Yeah. And that so it's not just good for Gentiles, right? It's good for everybody, right? And I think that's the um, that's where I think yeah, reading across uh, any kind of uh, social difference. So I think even reading with someone who is uh, white and male like me, but is in different social class, may be struck by, you know, hearing like, I, you know, that person. It strikes me that certain financial gurus often quote proverbs, but not Matthew, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> Some some yes. parts of the Bible are really great advice if you're a prince and you have lots of money. Right. Other parts of the Bible offer really great advice if you're poor and will die poor, yes. right? And so I think, but I'm inclined probably to resonate with one of those sections and not with another. And I need someone who's sitting in a different social location to help me see what I don't see, right? Yeah. And e- even if it's within my, you know, certain demographics are the same, I think any kind of difference is such so illuminating.
0: Hi, my name is Michelle Arndt, and I'm a church planter and pastor in rural Wisconsin near the outer edges of the Twin Cities. Recently, I reflected on my time in the Gravity Cohort five years ago and the way it opened up space in me to see how for much of my Christian life, my words and works remained disconnected from the ways of Jesus because I lacked the ability to name my actual desires and how they played out in my real world. Gravity gave me the tools to excavate things like the way hidden desires for power and popularity prevent me from loving others well. It taught me the language of noticing through kairos moments in everyday life that are far better at telling the truth about what I actually believe about Jesus and myself than 10 Bible studies ever could. Gravity is not about information, it's about transformation. I continue to reach regularly for the things that I've learned in gravity in my everyday life and relationships as a person and a pastor. Those who know me best have heard me say repeatedly, Gravity has been the single most transformative spiritual experience I've had thus far in my life as a follower of Jesus. If you want to clear the clutter of Christian ideas and move into living in the ways of Jesus, Gravity is for you.
4: To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com academy.
3: just experienced this this um, past weekend. We have like a a group that meets at our house on Sunday nights. And there is a a guy who just moved recently from Cameroon. He's a Muslim and somehow he got connected to our group and it's kind of a wild story. But what's interesting to me is that we're going through the book of Acts Mm
1: -hmm. and we
3: were in Acts 13 and 14 this past week. And his questions that he was asking were very different Mm -hmm. than the the white Americans who grew up in a church were asking, right mm, yeah, and it was challenging and it was good. and um, and it made me think like, oh, this is really good that he's here, not just for his sake. like that's how we tend to think of it like exactly. oh here's this Muslim and we're gonna like convert him, right um <laughs> but there was something good for me for his questions yep. that he was asking
5: absolutely. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and I like to think that in in Philip's encounter with the eunuch and in Peter's encounter with Cornelius, both the eunuch and the and Cornelius get to the gospel first. They both ask, What prevents me from being baptized? <laughs> like, what's right. the holdup? You know, and yeah. it's the apostles who have to go, well, that's a great
1: question. Yeah, right? is so,
5: there a so I think in that sense, these people, these outsiders are spiritual guides for mm-hmm. the apostles in those situations to bring them to some some realization they wouldn't have gotten to themselves. Yeah. And that's because they've only been asking the questions that they were trained to ask. There's nothing wrong with that. But it it certainly does occur to me that in our theological traditions in the west, there we have called them the loci, right? There's these handful of topics and questions and it's those topics and questions that every generation wrestles with. And at some point you need someone on the outside to say Aren't there other topics and questions? Like, what if we ask those same texts these questions instead? Mm-hmm. And then you go, "Well, that's actually you're right. It's all there in the text, but because I wasn't looking for it, because I had a certain you know frame, uh, I missed it. Okay. So it's not adding something to the text; it's really just drawing things out that are there that mm-hmm. we missed. And I think that those, yeah, that's those mm-hmm. called in any of those cultural differences really adds that dimension of vision. It's really helpful
2: yeah, and I think that I think that really, I mean, that highlights the need for some like hermeneutical hum- humility, we might call it. Yeah, um, just realizing how many times the gift, <laughs> the gift for the church came from the outside, mm. came from someone who was asking different questions, came from someone who noticed something that we couldn't notice. Yeah. Um, and just instead of reacting to those things as some sort of foreign virus, I wonder what it mm. would look like for us as churches and Christians to instead welcome these things, knowing, you know, as th- this isn't a threat right. you know, necessarily, it's yeah. not automatically a threat. Like, what if it's a gift? And what if this mm-hmm. would help us to unearth something that is actually here in our in our scriptures yeah. for us that would be a gift, but we can't perceive it because we're so used to treating the stranger the outsider yeah. as an enemy yeah. instead of a potential friend yeah well and i think what
5: you've touched on maybe a point that i can just make quickly and then we can move on but i think that the challenge with our western cultural uh sets of topics that we consider sort of normative for theology and the sort of uh instinctive interpretive moves we make as western readers uh i think what is they're not wrong or bad i think they're neutral in one sense where they become dangerous is when they become normative so once we say yeah. that this way of reading is the sort of neutral way of reading and all the other ways of reading are cultural interpretations then it becomes impossible for us to um accept correction from someone else, their their difference of opinion can only be interpreted as either error or heresy or, you know, or they don't take the scripture seriously because I do. And, and this interpretation is self-evident to me and that's, and we've exported our sort of Western impulses through theological education all over the world. Hmm. And so I've, I've had the pleasure of talking about this book with, um, groups outside the US. And it's been really fascinating to sit. If I have done it in a room with people who have seminary education, they can be Korean you know, nationals who have always lived in Korea, but their, their seminary education is Western. And so if I start talking to them about honor and shame, They'll say like that operates 100% in my family, but then they turn that off when they read the text because they've been told that in the interpretation of the text, that's not a factor, right? <laughs> and so part of what I'm trying to do there is just to say, what if you were to assume this parable about the man with two sons who he sends to you know work to, in the vineyard? Imagine that happened in your house with the kind of cultural dynamics that are Mm -hmm. contemporary to you and your family, or if not in your house, like in your childhood home, you and your brother spoke this way to the father. How many good sons does this guy have? And they're like, zero good sons. Right. Now let's go back to this passage and assume that a similar dynamic is happening here. And they're like, oh, there's honor and shame all over this passage. Right. And so, but they haven't felt permitted to let those sort of cultural givens be part of their interpretation. We feel free to let our culture give, cultural givens be part of the interpretation and then correct other readers and say, no, 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 that's the wrong impulse. You're importing your culture here. But we've been mm-hmm. importing our culture in it for 500 years. And so we need to, you know, so I think once, once that our cultural givens become normative, then they become dangerous. If they're not normative, then they're just neutral and natural like everybody else's. But once they become weaponized as the right way or the normal way to read, they become really dangerous.
4: Yeah. Gosh. So, Brandon, here's your book, man. This we got You got to do this. We got to talk about. We got to talk about. Like even even yeah. in Acts 15, how Paul takes those four things and breaks at least three of them. Yep. And how yep. and how he does so, not winking or holding his fingers. Right. And and in what ways are we constrained to? the scriptures and in what ways are we constrained to the ways the people behave in the scriptures mm, you know what i mean yeah. like are we doing what paul does or are we constrained to everything paul said mm. right do we treat paul like paul would have treated paul <laughs> right <laughs> you know that's yeah. like that's so these are like mm-hmm. really foundational questions that i think are super important yeah. but if we can put a pin in this and maybe in the <laughs> ot we can chat about this because uh, sure. this is a that's a deep rabbit hole yeah um maybe let's there's so many parts of this book that I think are just mind blowing for me. Mm. I think I'd I'd found these little bits and pieces here and there in my reading, but your book was the first time I could like just drink drink it all in one place. You know, mm. like it was all right there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's take this idea of of mores and social yeah. mores. You talk about right at the beginning of your book, and you talk about modesty. Mm. Uh, when we hear the word modesty, you know, we've all uh, either have kissed dating goodbye or know somebody who did. <laughs> Right, so we all yeah. when we when we hear the word modesty, yeah. we think of um you know wear long skirts and right. uh, guys don't wear bike shorts when you're uh you know walking past the sorority, <laughs> like we think of those kinds of things. But right. but uh, help give us then the ways that our Western eyes misunderstand what Scripture means by modesty.
5: Yeah, that's a great point because as you as you were describing that, I th- I thought the mental image that came to mind is immediately measuring the, uh, length of skirts or the width of shoulder straps, right. That the, the measure that there, you can write right into like school dress codes. What does modesty look like? And you can measure it in inches of width or length or whatever. Um, and so I think scripture certainly also, is concerned about sexual modesty about not being, you know, nakedness is shameful and those kinds of things. But I think when Paul is writing about um, conducting yourselves modestly in worship, that um, in the broader context, I don't have uh, the passage right in front of me, but in the broader context, he's talking about adornments. Mm-hmm. He's talking about ost- ostentatious d- displays of wealth, and is very likely instead of talking about sexual modesty in the worship service, very likely talking about economic modesty. So, don't when you gather together. Some of you are in the habit of either bringing expensive foods or dressing in fine clothes, and or arranging the seating in a way that those who are wealthy have the better places to sit, and those who are poor have the, you know, the um, don't have the seats of honor, and so. Um, when you're together, exercise modesty, and that modesty isn't primarily sexual, or even uh, maybe in in that case, not on the radar. But you should instead um, be modest in your in the way you display your money. I think that's interesting. Then we almost in the West, uh, I I don't know when I've ever heard anyone uh, discourage people from showing up to worship in really fancy cars, or you know, or the building. I remember distinctly being part of a building campaign that, you know, we were trying to attract young professionals and they're used to high quality, well-executed, you know, sort of things in their professional lives. And so we need to spend in order to give them a similar experience here. And I think, well, in retrospect, maybe that's not being economically modest, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And the main issue isn't that we can't get there. I think if somebody explains it to you, you can see that economic modesty matters. And you can see why in the text, there's some clues that tell us that's what it's there. I think what we're trying to get at in the book is that when we hear the word, our brain goes straight to sexuality and and we can't get out of it with, unless somebody takes us out of it. And so what we're trying to do is to help to say that, that path from the word modesty to images of sexual you know of people dressing in revealing ways is culturally conditioned we're concerned about sexual modesty because our broader culture is concerned about sexuality in any number of ways and while we might think of it or internalize it experience it as a biblical value it's really a cultural value that we then find support for in the text because we can say but look at that paul says when you worship you should dress modestly right so we can justify it but we ha- it takes somebody to kind of uh, sh- shake up our natural path to say, yeah. oh, this could be something else. And now that I see it, I'm going to see it other places. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about, I, I read, um, uh, this past year sometime a, a profile about a really, uh, sort of big church, um, in a major metropolitan area that had a lot of celebrities, you know, coming <clears> to this church and this, this church kind of imploded, but I, I remember like I, I thought of that passage actually as hmm. I read about the dynamics in this church where there's this VIP section for the, hmm. the, the right. top celebrities who don't really yeah. want to be bothered by the the common people, you know, <laughs> asking for autographs and like yep. all the weird dynamics that went into this church that I was like, Oh, this is modesty. This this yeah. is a church that's failing hmm. to in modesty. call people yeah. to modesty. Hmm. Actually, wow. yeah. Um, well, of- and
5: it's and once you start reading it that way, I think you know, there was I don't know if everybody did it, but it was certainly an occurrence in Puritan New England that, you know, the way you kind of, you paid your tithes, you pay for your pew. And right. there were very often processions of the wealthier families come in first and sit down and the poorer families come in last and they sit in the, and so I think, you know, it, it's not just that we in the 21st century miss this. It's that even in our, in our longer genealogy in our theological genealogy, modesty begins to kind of be reduced to sexuality over generations so it's not just our gut impulse today but it's we're discipled into that narrow interpretation and so if we begin to see it broader we can then look back and to say oh we've not only do you and I miss this impulsively instinctively we've missed this in the tradition for a long time and so that begins some deeper questions about you know, well, some deeper questions. <laughs> so,
2: uh, yeah, Indeed. yeah, about a, a gr- about a great many things. <laughs> about a great
4: many
1: things. Yeah, <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh,
4: this is this is really good, Brandon. So, like, I mean, I just pull that out because it's yeah. so striking when you begin to realize, um, what kinds of questions then do we have to begin to ask? Mm. You know? Yeah. Uh, what kind of uh, is it? Was it that Paul's culture? was over-concerned with economic Mm. uh, disparity and gospel freedom means that we're free to flaunt our wealth Mm. or does it mean we're under-concerned with economic disparity Mm. and perhaps my $600 pair of designer trainers when I'm preaching on uh, the modesty text in first Timothy (laughs) is really dancing on the edge of calling down lightning. You know what I mean? Like, Like, and so I think these are the kinds of questions that, this book stirs and they're mm-hmm. so good. Mm-hmm. They're so yeah. good for our Thank
2: formation you.
4: and our biblical studies and our mm-hmm.
2: discipleship. And if yeah. you could, Brandon, if you could weigh in on that specifically about the sneakers, because I've been talking <laughs> about his sneakers for a long time. I haven't really found a way to do it yet, but this might, this might, be, our, this might be our moment. Oh, this is an <laughs> intervention. Good. An yeah. Intervention. Okay. Yeah, Got it. Okay. Salvation <laughs>
5: Well, and I think when you start, when you realize that your brain makes, that you have an instinctive uh, kind of, uh, let me take a step back. There's a, 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 a phenomenon in psychology that I find really helpful. People talk about sharpening and flattening of details. And so an example of this that I think is kind of hilarious is recently my daughter, who's seven, was riding her bike and her scream outside and like come running at you know? And so I immediately, I run out the front door. <laughs> she comes in the back door screaming and she goes to my wife, it, like collapses. And so I'm out the front trying to figure out what's going on. And she starts talking about this dog that chased her down the street and it was enormous. And it was trying to eat her, right? Like I can hear her talking and, like, and sobbing and heaving. I get in the yard and her bike is laying in the driveway and there is a chihuahua. In the yard beside the bike. (laughs) And I'm trying to like her terror is real. Mm
1: -hmm.
5: The giant dog that's trying to eat her is not real. It's like an eight pound chihuahua, right? In the driveway. And so I think psychologically, what happens is she has sharpened the detail of the dog's size and ferocity, right? In her mind, it is entirely real. All she sees is teeth and fur and whatever. And 10 minutes later, after she had calmed down, I said, Eliza. I saw the dog in the yard. Do you know what it was? She said, what? And she was like, bracing herself for the worst. It's like a timber wolf or something. I said, it was a chihuahua. And she started dying laughing. It's like, in retrospect, she goes, oh, okay, I get it. You know, But in the moment, instinctively, certain details leap out and others you just lose. And there's all kinds of, you know, with uh, different eyewitnesses to different events, certain details stand out and certain. And so I think, I think of it in terms of sharpening and flattening. Like when we read as Western readers, we don't use this terminology in the book, but it'll make it into a revision, hopefully, that the um, like sexual issues are sharpened for us. They just jump out. And so we don't just see them when talking about modesty. We see them when we read the story of David and Bathsheba. And we're like, Oh, the chief sin here is an affair. Or we see it when uh issue like in a list of vices that will get yep. you into hell. We see the sexual, sexual ones pop out, but the ones that are flattened are
4: verbal you know, abuse,
5: verbal abuse, backbiting, slander, etc. Yep. And then the things that are flattened when we read the story of David and ashiba is that there's all this like honor and shame stuff. And Uriah is mentioned over and over and over and over again. And that it's, it's really about them, but that, that one feature of our culture, which shows up in our mores. Um, it shows up when we talk, you know, uh, about say the, you know, the priority of money over sexual issues, it shows up in things like, I, I think we mentioned in the book, my European friends will point out that like American movies are so violent and they don't understand why, yeah. but then like there's nudity in all the European movies and they're not real worried about that. I think, but we will let, not let our, kids watch a movie with skin in it, but as long as they're blowing people's heads off and there's no nudity, <laughs> we're totally fine. And like, so that's just a different, exactly. Yeah. And so I think it's it. And so those become like things that are sharpened and flattened, not just on one issue, but once you recognize that like I am prone because of my Southern evangelical white, you know, upbringing, to, for sexual issues to pop off the page. Mm. The question I need to ask is when the first readers read this passage, is that what popped off the page for them or did something else pop off the page? Right. Right. That's, that's kind of what we're getting at is the, like the impulsive, instinctive, unreflective read, which we will say is the plain reading or is the, you know, the the right. the, the exactly. self-evident reading, right. exactly. What's self-evident to us as the main point in the story may have not been self-evident to Paul when he wrote it. And right. so that's the kind of pause we're trying to say mm-hmm. in the book, essentially, here are these areas where our, our reflective cultural, what goes without being said, is different from the original writers and audience of the scriptures. And that doesn't mean we're, we're bad. It just means we've got to be tuned to the fact that certain things are popping for us that they, that would have been in the background for them. And we need to become more sensitive to that, uh, those dynamics.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's so good, Brandon. Um, uh, We, I uh, yeah, I feel like we could talk about this for a long time. We got to wrap up. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm long-winded. Up... We could go forever. So, <laughs> no, it's so fun. It's so fun. Um, but I'm. Um, yeah, we we can uh, get into our Q and A time here with our um, Gravity Commons folks in just a second. Um, maybe one last question. Um, yeah. But, you know, thinking back over the last eight years or so, since ten years since this book has been published, there we have been through a lot <laughs> culturally. Um, I think is an understatement. Um, Black Lives Matter, Church 2, Me Too, Make America Great Again, the pandemic, Mm -hmm. the January 6th uh, uh, insurrection, uh, the war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Like, man, like, there's been a lot of... um, uh, I think for me and for a lot of our listeners, it has felt very discouraging and very disillusioning. Um, And so thinking about that person uh, in mind, uh, thinking about me, Brandon... How? (laughs) Um, uh, Maybe you could just talk about maybe like are there Mm. ways that this book, even though it doesn't address any of these things directly, are there ways that this book could be a a helpful resource to people like that?
1: Mm.
5: Yeah, that's such a good question, and I think I could maybe personalize that to say that I think that having thought about these things for a number of years was helpful to me, in part because it helped me a, a, a little prior to these the the crucible of the last few years right like it's just it's been so much at once um, and on so many different topics that feel unrelated but right. all ter- all equally terrible right at some level yeah. i think what the what reflecting on these things for the last decade has helped me do is kind of reorganize the tool shed a little bit right so like when i When I have this experience, I feel like my storage, my mental storage space is a little different now. And so I can see this thing that's happening from maybe, uh, I don't want to say a broader perspective, but kind of like two perspectives at once. Like, here's my gut impulse. And I have a little bit of training to say, maybe I should question my gut impulse. But then also to say, like, it's helpful for me to think through kind of individualism and collectivism. And think that the, you know, the some of the sort of Black Lives Matter uh, movement feels like a collectivistic kind of thing that's centered around race, maybe, right? And then on the right, you'll say, well, that's identity politics and that's dangerous, whatever, I think. But nationalism is also collectivistic. Right. It's just, it's a different identity marker than something. And so even beginning to be able to just say, okay, I'm seeing these. Impulses that maybe I would have said Westerners don't do this, but now I'm seeing they actually do. But I have some categories. And so it helps to sort of step back a little bit. I also think that we just, like I mentioned at the beginning, that we, whether you're a defender of your group or a critic of your group, you tend to kind of reason in the same from the same standing points and i think getting a different standing point can be helpful. and so i don't want to present it as a like outsider's view. i don't mean that like i'm above the fray or outside but just trying to say we're both arguing about the virtue of this thing using entirely western categories and reasoning. what if having like what if the majority world take on what's happening, <laughs> illuminates things that neither of us see, right? Because even though we disagree with each other, we still fundamentally share the sort of Western habits. And so I think that's helpful Helpful for me to think that whether you're progressive or fundamentalist in America, you're light, you're still Western. And so you share more habits than you realize. And having some sort of outside voice into that conversation can be illuminating whichever side of that divide you feel like you're on. I don't know if that's a, yeah. That's super
2: helpful. Yeah. I think, I think it's, even though, even though it doesn't directly address some of those things, I think I hear you saying that um, the work it takes to maybe invest in blowing up some of these paradigms, it bears unpredictable longer term fruit in our ability to navigate cultural challenges that's maybe, right. Maybe we've got a different mental architecture, a little bit different perspective that yeah. allows us, you know, to maybe break out of, you know, the some of the binaries that you just, you know, talked about <laughs> that keep us kind of locked in antagonism, animosity, and just that's sort right. of intractable. We're yep. not going anywhere. So that's, that's right. That's mm-hmm. really
5: yeah. Very yeah. very, very good summary. Yeah. Thanks.
4: Well, Brandon, we're gonna wrap up this public podcast time and then spend some time here in. The comments to chat real quick though. It's been ten years. Any plans for uh, a second edition to this update?
5: Yeah, we are hope hopefully working on revisions this summer, and um, which I guess would mean maybe fall next year there could be uh, a revised edition. So I'm excited awesome. to revisit after some reflection. Yeah. Probably not fundamental changes, but um, but definitely. The conversations have changed in the last 10 years, yeah. and we, we want to make sure that it's up to date. So,
4: yeah. So oh, good. That's exciting. The book, again, yeah. is called Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, Removing Cultural Blinders. To better understand the Bible, Brandon co-authored this with Randy Richards. Brandon, thanks for being with us on the podcast today.
5: Thank you so much. It's my pleasure entirely.
3: Well, well, It was so good. It was yeah. good to hear from him. And ten years—that's a long time. Yeah. Um, because it feels like just yesterday I read the book. So. I know. Um, I know. It's great. Well,
4: I can't wait for. I was. I was going to pitch like, "Hey, go out and get this book," but then when he said there's going to be a rewrite, I'm actually going to be selling my used copy and getting the new one. So. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, and you'll get $30. all my underlines and notes and. Uh, no, actually, this book. To the book this book actually was so if you if you have a friend or you yourself feel like you're going through deconstruction this book helped me name that i wasn't having so much of a faith crisis as i was having more of like a philosophy or worldview or metaphysical crisis like mm-hmm. i was just becoming more and more disillusioned with all the all the cataracts cultural cataracts that I felt like got in my lens and I couldn't see Jesus mm-hmm. and I felt like you know why you know why are we being why are we such greedy affluent idiots you know what I mean mm-hmm. like why does it feel scandalous to say um we should we should give money away like a lot of money away like why why do I feel so and this book helped me be like okay okay this is why this is why yes. I'm not crazy and uh, it's just a gift so go get it if you don't yeah. got it yet don't wait for the second edition go get it
3: it's it's worth it. We actually like uh Bible teach for a group called uh Training Ground here in Colorado Springs. And at the end of the summer, we give them like here are 10 books that we think you should read and it's on mm. the list. Mm-hmm. Um I think yeah. it's I think it's yeah. worth the read and it's important.
2: So yeah, yeah. I think I I really appreciated his comment about like investing in uh sort of creating the mental architecture required to mm actually like deal with all the crazy cultural stuff we've had to deal with in the last six, seven years. Mm -hmm. Um, I really appreciated that because I think that, that is like in some, in some ways, you know, one way to say this is, is like uh, if you weren't, if you hadn't been spending four to 10 years preparing for the pandemic, even though you didn't realize you were preparing for a pandemic, you're not prepared for the pandemic. Mm, You just weren't prepared for it. And so I think like if you find, I mean, and none of us really were prepared for it, but I think like for, especially for people who find themselves like just extremely buffeted, Mm. you know, with disillusionment and discouragement, um, I think a book like this is actually going to be a really helpful way for you to build resilience for future, you know, pandemics or cultural shockwaves, you know, in, in other ways. So. Um, because it is kind of a whole mental architecture. It's a framework. It sort of helps you to get outside your normal ways of seeing things and doing things. Yes, and, and reading, yeah.
4: reading. Yep, things, reading yep. That's. So. I was reminded again of like how excited I am to find to read scripture with a diverse group mm. of people. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It was. Yeah. So, and and just how unfortunate. You know, like we have some Muslim friends here in Fishers, Ben and. And some, I have some Jewish friends out in Fishers, but in other places. And it's just unfortunate how Christians and Muslims and Jews have so often not tolerated the difference, you know, and have just been, you know, at war at each other's necks. Um, but on the other hand, Hindus, they've never had any beef.
3: Oh, my
2: goodness. So just thinking about that. Did you see that one coming, Christy?
3: No, no, no. no. I never see him coming. Never. Never. Uh, yeah.
2: I knew one was coming, but I, I have to admit that I didn't see that one coming.
3: So. I did not see that.
2: It's good you integrated oh the Muslim goodness. neighbors. Well, well, well. <sighs> All right. Well, see y'all next time. That means we're done. Yeah, I think so.
3: All right. Peace, friends. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it.
4: Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.
2: You can join our Gravity community for free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles that we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join.
3: Our show is produced by Ben Sturkey and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sturkey edits and mixes the podcast. You can check out his work at aaronsturkey.com.
4: We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message. And click the Start Recording
2: button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.